This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Virginia Heffernan, and welcome to This is Critical, where we examine all our assumptions about culture, like that sequels are inherently bad. I mean, do you really want to live in a world without Rocky II or Rocky III? Nobody owes nobody nothing. You owe yourself. You're wrong. Friends owe. Friends don't owe. They do because they want to do. I would say I think about that like every week. Friends don't know. They do because they want to do. Discuss. So an ocean wave of sadness hit a couple days ago, and it nearly knocked me off my feet and smashed me face first into the sand. In fact, it did put me to bed for a nap of semi-obscene length. The subject of my brooding was my kids' teenagerdom, which means they're growing up and heading out, which, yes, is natural, but also really unfair after all I've done for them. So I was sitting around like a giving tree stump singing Sunrise Sunset to myself and, of course, trying to find someone close at hand to blame for the aging process. Computers, maybe, or just TikTok. My own parents? RuPaul? Rand Paul? And that's when I realized I was just damned... Sad. Sad like sadness. The blue cartoon from Inside Out, the one that's kind of ectoplasmic and flops around and has few bones. Remember her? And as sure as the sadness landed, so did the dictator in me simultaneously rise up, barking at my whole soul to cheer up, you freak. I've heard this called the second arrow in Buddhism. The first arrow, as I understand it, is inevitable, and it comes at you from outside. The anguish of getting sick, breaking up, seeing beloved kids grow up and leave home after all you've done for them. And the second arrow is the one you shoot at yourself, when you become anguished about anguish and start hating yourself for being sad and then pile on with things like naps are a moral failure. Yes, I say that to myself. And I just need a good hard run to snap out of this. And I am a moral failure. That second arrow doesn't maybe make the first one better and really slows down the process of extracting the first one and nursing the wound. So I've been trying to accept the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, but not the slings and arrows of my own self-laceration, if that makes any sense. And I'm trying to give myself some room before amping up my misery with self-hatred. And that way, I swear to God, the sadness is much more expansive when measured in tablespoons of tears, but it's also much, much quicker. 
right. So before we get to our guest today, here's a reflection on sadness from comedian and friend of the show, Mike Albo. Sadness always sounds sexier in different countries. And there's, of course, gorgeous words in Portuguese, like saudade, for a certain kind of special nostalgic longing type of sadness. I want there to be more delineations in our language for special sadnesses, too. So I made a list of special sadnesses that need words. Sadness that I'll never learn the guitar or violin in this lifetime. Sadness that I didn't buy that Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band-style jacket at APC in 2005, and I still regret not buying it. Sadness at wilting sunflowers. Sadness when passing old diners with no one in them. Sadness when I see a stack of actor headshots and I'm overcome thinking about the sheer amount of people trying to make it. And the larger sadness of Los Angeles. Sadness when I see elderly people sitting alone, but also when I see a group of preschool children walking together two by two holding those little rope things because I always imagine them older and sitting alone. The sadness that overcomes me at don't walk signals and stop signs that is so slight and small but still sad. The sadness of looking at aged dioramas in museums and seeing mannequins outfitted to portray early man wielding the first man-made tools and weapons. Sadness of scruff marks on stairs and old walk-ups. Sadness that those scruff marks are probably from someone's sad shoes in the 70s carrying bags of groceries up a five-floor walk-up to their lonely apartment. The sadness that even Marilyn Monroe was sad. And Whitney Houston, sad. Sadness of loneliness. Sadness for gay bars on Santa Monica Boulevard empty in the daytime playing Whitney Houston. Sadness at how long it took for an openly gay man to be on Saturday Night Live. Sadness that being queer is not only cool now but lucrative except if you're over the age of 45, which I am, and therefore the sadness that the word queer is only for young people, I guess. Sadness when someone says, have you seen that show The Other Two? It totally reminds me of you. And I'm supposed to take that as a compliment. Sadness that I didn't make a move on Michael that one summer night after college when I went to go visit him and we lay in his hammock together with our legs touching. Sadness at obvious signals. Sadness that I spent my 20s like that, always sort of afraid that any sign of affection I had towards someone might be refused or turned down or worse, get me killed. And then the anger that I had to experience that and the inevitable sadness that comes with experience. And then the sadness that anger is apparently a lazy form of sadness. Now joining me to investigate all things sadness is Helen Russell. She's a journalist who studied happiness for years, writing books including The Atlas of Happiness and The Year of Living Danishly. But as you'll hear, she has a personal history of sadness, which led her to write her new book called How to Be Sad, Everything I've Learned About Getting Happier by Being Sad Better. Helen, welcome to This is Critical. It's lovely to be here. Thanks so much. All right. So I loved this book on sadness. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, many people are surprised by the fact that they enjoyed it so much. Let's just settle on a definition because um, I, when I ins- saw this book, I thought, well, I'll get that book because I um, have just about every book on depression um, there is, having been through periods of depression myself. Um, but I, when I picked this up, I realized it was something different. 
It wasn't. It isn't about serotonin and uh, you know how exercise might cure your depression. It's uh, it's something else. So tell me about the difference. Yeah, absolutely. And having been in both camps myself, having experienced depression as well, as well as periods of sadness, it was important for me to clarify. So depression, I think of as a chronic mental illness that needs help. Whereas sadness, on the other hand, can be awakening. It's the temporary emotion that we feel on occasions when we've been hurt or something is wrong or we've lost something and it's totally normal. I think of sadness as a message that can tell us when something is wrong in our lives, but we have to listen. And if we don't listen, then it's more likely to tip into something else. I should, for listeners, to point point out this somehow this is a humor book that also contains um, a huge amount of erudition in the form of these interviews. But the some of the interviews you did, one of them I think pointed out that there are cultures, in particular outside the United States, where when you're sad, you are not told no, you're not, or you're not told oh, feel better, or don't be sad, and it's it was almost hard for me to imagine feeling sad and not having a second voice come into my head saying, don't be sad. Yes, it was so interesting during research to understand that, yeah, as you say, Americans are actually outliers in their reluctance to experience sad, in their keenness to avoid sadness. And if you compare, say, the US and Japan, which are good comparisons because they're both you know, wealthy societies with well-developed healthcare systems, actually in Japan, sadness is not viewed as a bad thing. Um, and so psychologists uh, will say it never occurred to us to try and medicate away or try and treat somebody with sadness or melancholia because it never occurred to us that this was a bad thing. I'm having trouble really, as I say, even imagining a place where you say to someone, I'm sad, and the person doesn't say, ah, oh, things are all right, look on the bright side, you know, it's going to end. In the, in the UK or, or um, in Denmark, which you've written about, is there another way to respond to the sadness of someone you love, other than telling them to get over it? That's a great question. I think in the UK, there's still very much that, oh, cheer up, it might never happen, or like, keep calm and carry on. So absolutely, we yeah. are not good at that. Um, I think in Denmark, there is much more acceptance of, I guess, risk and physical discomfort in many of the Scandinavian countries. And interestingly, studies show that this plays into our resilience emotionally as well. So if we are you know, doing a hike that is, feels quite hard, or if we are learning as a small child to climb a tree and fall down and cut our knee, and that's mm. normalised, then actually that gives us some some resilience. It gives us some um, some ability to cope in future when life is hard, which it inevitably is. Whereas, you know, the coddling of, of the American mind, for example, the idea that we are wrapping, we've been wrapped in cotton wool from a really young age, physically and emotionally, that really mm. doesn't help. In Portuguese, there's this term sodaji, which is um, the sort of bittersweet and melancholy of a happiness that once was, or even one you merely mm. hoped for. So it's kind of happiness lost. And there's there's something in that as well. It's not that um, month after month feeling of despair, but it is temporary despair. And despair can be quite a useful message as well. So any of these so-called negative emotions in, in air quotes mm -hmm. can be helpful. It's if they're going on for a long time, that I think then you would begin to seek help and class them as depression. Right. It's, that makes sense. It's about time and also severity. But I love how in this book you do weave in your own story, which contains elements of both sadness and depression. Do you mind going through some of that, your kind of awakening as a sad person or your education as a sad person? 
Yeah, that's a great way of putting it, my awakening into sadness. Yeah, absolutely. So when I was growing up, my sister died of um, sudden infant death syndromes or cot death, we used to call it. And at that time, nobody really spoke about it. Nobody spoke to my mother about it. No one spoke to me about it. My dad left soon after my parents divorced. Nothing was spoken of. We were just told to, oh, well, get over it. Um, Cheer up. Keep going. Be my happy girl. And so that's what I did for years. Um, and I you know, worked hard at school. I tried to please my, my mom and I did everything in my power. And um, a therapist latterly told me that it was no surprise at all to him that I'd ended up working as a happiness researcher for eight years because I was so terrified of being sad. And then I became a journalist. I became a writer. I had some books published. And back when we could travel the world, I was um, speaking to people about my my then latest book, the, the Atlas of Happiness, talking about different cultural concepts of happiness around the world. And people would come up to me afterwards and say things like, oh, um, you know, I've just lost my husband. Why aren't I feeling happy? Or I, uh, they'd recently been made homeless or been made redundant. You know, why aren't I happy? And it, it was just, it's always more striking, I guess, when you see, when you are on the outside and you're seeing in other people, you just want to gently take them into a hug and say, there are times you're not going to be happy right now. It's normal to feel sad right now when you've experienced this loss. And I came to realize and, and start researching it into a, it further that actually there is a real terror of loss. There's almost a phobia of sadness in a society. And that seems to be a real problem. We We don't know how to be sad. And this was pre-pandemic we don't know how to be sad but it's inevitable and so if we pathologize normal sadness or if we're so reluctant to feel it that we just keep busy or we indulge in excess or deprivation we are going to be a lot worse off and that's when yeah that's when bigger problems can arise if we've had that tradition for so or that way of thinking for so long especially for little children you were three right when your sister died yeah i mean what might that have looked like if you'd been encouraged to be sad i mean even leaving therapy out of it what cultural context would have allowed you to kind of have your emotions do you think I think, I guess, a culture where that was accepted, where where it was accepted that you see people being sad and it wasn't that there was something, you know, in inverted, inverted commas again, wrong with them. It was just yeah. that they were sad because something sad, very sad had happened to them. Um, I guess, again, it would be, you know, talking to the school, telling, telling neighbours and, and friends what had happened saying it's okay to cry. I think mm-hmm. it's very, you still see it around now, parents telling children, oh, don't cry, it'll be okay. And actually, we should cry. Otherwise, you you inherit a sort of a sense of shame that what you're feeling is wrong, that your emotions are wrong. And then yeah. you begin not to trust yourself because you think, well, maybe, maybe it's not right to feel that. And, you know, burying it down. There was a whole generation came of age with the idea that what we don't talk about can't hurt us. And we know now, that that's not true. In fact, the opposite is true. What we don't yeah. talk about can hurt us. And, you know, suppressing negative emotions has been shown not to work, to spe- to backfire spectacularly. My mum ended up having to speak to, she was so lonely. You know, her husband had left, her daughter had died. Her, her younger daughter was just doing her best to get on with things. She ended up talking to the, to the guy who came to service the washing machine. She was so lonely. She had no one to talk to about it because there was just this culture where you don't talk about death. And it just thinks, you know, it's just so sad. If one of your friends is going through that now, that's not what you'd want for them. On the other hand, a, t- a stranger 
sometimes that makes perfect sense. I feel like I've at dark times confided in taxi drivers. Um, I don't know if you ever, you know, just um, That's true. You, know, you look at the thing, hey, Bill, um, can I talk to you about something? Did you let yourself experience sadness then later? Yeah, when I finally, years and years and years later, accepted that sadness and accepted the sadness of not, not having a dad in my life and, you know, mm-hmm. the sad things that we've all had happen to us, it was a big a big scary outpouring. Yeah, that's a that's a big thing to allow yourself to sit with. But it, I can only feel glad that I have. Coming up after the break, how to make time for sadness. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Welcome back to This is Critical. Today, I'm talking with journalist Helen Russell about her book, How to Be Sad, Everything I've Learned About Getting Happier by Being Sad Better. So if it's okay, I got to tell you some of my own story here. When I was in the middle of a divorce 10 years ago, I read somewhere that there was sort of good and bad news for regulating your own emotions in front of others. I had two little children, and if I remember right, the recommendation was you don't cry in front of your children, so that was hard. But what was also in the book was that you should schedule periods for sadness, Um, So when the kids were with the nanny, I would just pluck two hours for sobs and ugly crying. And I would almost look forward to those times because they'd be so cathartic and make it possible for me to get mac and cheese on the table for dinner that night, even while weeping. And it was some of the hardest crying I've ever done, partly because I was packing it in. Um, And in two hours, I thought it would never end. But almost just at the two-hour mark, it started to lift. Yes, and and actually... There's been studies showing that if you schedule, you can call it worry time, um, which makes me think of the MC Hammer song, Hammer Time. But if you schedule <laughs> worry time, then you you give yourself, you know, the other hours in the day, the other 22 hours, perhaps in your case, to yeah. just think, well, I know I've got that later. I I can do the things I need to do because I know that I've got that. It's, that's sort of the safety net there. So I yeah. think it ca- it can be really helpful. And, you know, crying, again, we know now Darwin famously denied the usefulness of tears. And we know now that tears do serve a purpose. They, they help reduce cortisol because we're expressing our emotions. So however painful it is, and we've all had those cries where you're crying so hard that your eyeballs hurt. But, <laughs> but afterwards, you know, you, you do feel marginally better if desiccated slightly. (laughs) In what context does Darwin talk about tears? I believe it's when he's sort of looking at, you know, all of the species and and what we do. And, you know, that I think, you know, monkeys cry to elicit a support from their mother. Before that, those thoughts were crying. Is it sluicing out toxins? Um, 
And then there was the thought, well, if that was the case, then wouldn't you feel better after drooling? And, you know, nobody particularly feels better after a good drool. So um, <laughs> it's only really recently that scientists have realised that, in fact, it is, it's the expression. It's not that there is something specific in our saliva or our tears or anything like that. So I, yeah, I think it was just when he was sort of pronouncing on the world, as he was wont to do, that this was one of the things he, um, he believed. But yeah. he, of course, you know, he lost, he lost a child. He cried a lot. But I think he just felt it was something unnecessary. And I think at the time, culturally, there was a sense that this was something that happened, but it was a bit unnecessary and better not to talk about it. Yeah. When you had a breakthrough and were able to feel the sadness around your sister's death, your father's abandonment, how did you ritualize it? I mean, did you do two hours a day like I did? Or did you, and at first were you like, come on, tears, cry, you know? Did your eyes feel dry and as though you couldn't feel the whole voluptuous extent of your emotions? Because I know I've had that. I think for me, so I also had periods of um, infertility and, and struggling with IVF and stuff. So then I was finally happily able to have children. And so that you know, it's a whole layer of skin that feels like it's been pulled off and you suddenly feel right raw and quite vulnerable. And so tears became more familiar, um, I would say. And especially I had twins and I was on bed rest. So tears after that so were also quite familiar. But the, the final point where I ended up seeing a therapist that was really fantastic and sort of combined a great sort of scandy, dark sense of humour with some really <laughs> helpful advice on how to access my sad, I would say that was at a period when I just hit the wall and there was nothing else I could be doing. So I remember a time when I was um, sitting in the doctor's surgery, just crying tears that were falling straight down onto grey carpet tiles. And there was nothing, there was nothing I could do. And I was working too much, trying to keep busy as many of us do to try and push away that sadness, think, well, I'm going to defer that. I'll think about it another time. And, uh, you know, indulging in all the unhealthy coping strategies that many of us will. And then it was realising oh, okay, that, that's not working. And um, and I knew enough from my work and my research to know what are the things that I should be doing to, to feel happier. And the only thing I wasn't doing was allowing myself to feel this sadness. So that was it, because I was already doing the, you know, trying to eat healthily and trying to go for an hour's walk in nature each day and doing all the things that should have have made life seem okay. But if you're blocking out a big swathe of your emotions, then it's it's not going to be okay. I started to think when I was in my 20s and I had these regular periods of sadness that the way I could tell that I was getting sad, the same way a fever is fighting the virus you don't know you have, is that I started to robotically do things I'd read about to make myself happier. For instance, fresh flowers, yoga. Like if I really started to do those and clamp down on my schedule to be as productive as possible, I knew something was wrong. Yes, like miserably spooning yoghurt into your mouth thinking, well, this will do it. The uh, microbes, this will certainly sort it all out. Probiotics, I haven't thought about those in a while. Vitamin B, every now and then B. I would be be like, I think I read that B makes the difference. Uh, Bottoms up. (laughs) That story is very much in how to be sad. The kind of conversation between these coping mechanisms that are in fact making it worse and the simplicity of of the emotion of sadness. I resorted for a long time to alcohol until 10 years ago when I when I got sober. Um, so in your case, you resorted to, there were eating issues, there were uh, behavioral issues. Um, t- can you talk about that a little bit? Yes. 
I, I tried them all. Um, yeah, so similarly, I think in my in my 20s, certainly alcohol was a very acceptable coping strategy. I, you know, working in journalism, there's lots of parties. It was the tail end of the daytime drinking in journalism, big fancy lunches. So sure. yes, it was totally acceptable to sort of numb, numb any pain that way. Um, then I... Um, I thought, I thought cleverly, um, if I can't be the most successful at my career, perhaps I could be the thinnest. And then an eating disorder developed for a while. And that took a lot of work to sort of come out of that. And then an addiction to exercise as another, again, it's these ways to keep busy. And of course, Mm. physiologically as well, you are, you are doing something to yourself. You're stopping that pain. Um, and then with parenting, there is, I think in my head, because I wanted babies for so long and I mm. thought I might not be able to have them because of the eating disorder and because of stress of life. So I thought when I when I finally become a mother, everything will be fine. And mm. of course, that's not the case as well, because that's life and it's a total joy to, to be a parent. But there are challenges that come with that as well. So I think... <laughs> Nicely said. Challenges. Is that what you call them? <laughs> yeah, challenges. So, so think about the yeah. academic word for, for the huge pain in the ass that kids sometimes represent. Um, so yes. yes, there are challenges. Wait, arrival fallacy is another great phrase in the book. What Tell me about arrival fallacy. Yeah, this is this idea that we think, um, sometimes it's called summit syndrome, that we are always working towards a goal. And we think when we achieve that goal, suddenly we'll be happy or then everything will be fine. Um, and actually this doesn't work because we get the dopamine from the pursuit of the chase. And when we get the thing we've been chasing, we feel nothing. And so this is problematic, if, especially if we're chasing goals that are uh, external, if they're you know, parental validation or if they're a big pay packet, it's more likely to feel uh, as though we set, feel a real sense of anticlimax afterwards. But even mm-hmm. things that we really want, like you know, becoming a parent, for example, or entering a long-term relationship, these things because of our expectations, especially these days with social media, with our society's expectations, with, because of any Hollywood film ever, we think yeah. that the happily ever after is it. And of course it's not. That's when, that's when the real gritty problems can start. So, yeah. Yeah. I think that, right. That's right. And also maybe some idea that one thing can compensate for another. So just must get into the next relationship or, you know, a new job or, or, uh, you know, this conception has to work in some kind of IVF um, experience. Um, And, and that, that sort of disrespects the existing state of mind and heart, right? Yes, that's a really lovely way of putting it, yeah, to disrespect it. And I think there's something about the rush as well that we are all in all the time that is not conducive to being more aware of our emotions. And it it, it maybe feels, people often say, well, that's a massive luxury to be able to uh, experience the granularity of your emotions. Well, it is and it isn't. It it shouldn't be. And if... And maybe that's a bigger kind of structural inequality issue and around our work-life balance, but we are more productive when we are in a positive state of mind. It it could all work a lot better than it currently does. And rushing all the time to avoid feeling is not the answer. After the break, is everyone allowed to be sad? This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. 
So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Welcome back to This is Critical. Today I'm talking with Helen Russell, author of the book How to Be Sad. Did you go through periods of sadness while writing the book? Yeah, yeah, I really did. I think, um, and I don't think I'd have been able to write it uh, had I not had uh, the the process of, of, I guess, understanding and coming to terms with a lot of those things. I didn't want to write it angry or write it raw. I wanted to write it when I was in a place of, of understanding. But mm-hmm. there is certainly something um, looking back and really analysing, for example, my childhood, that you end up thinking, yeah, that was really sad. That was really mm-hmm. sad that that happened. And I'm really sorry that that happened. And no wonder. I just kept thinking, no wonder, all the time. So, yeah, that, that was quite sad to go back. And then also times when I have you know, when I have relied on crutches to ignore my own sadness, I thought about you know times when I perhaps hurt the people around me then and then you think that's also something to to sort of acknowledge and and to just be sorry about and try to be mindful of next time. I know you're 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 sensitive to in in excellent ways in the book to therapeutic injustice or or sort of emotional luxuries and the way marginalized communities have have not been allowed in some cases the full expression of their emotions. On the other hand, you make the point that the Anglosphere, that England, America, maybe Canada, um, hasn't done so well with it, and that we have a lot to learn actually from other cultures that don't always tell each other to buck up. Yeah, absolutely, and I think it is. It is a massive, it is a massive problem, but it, you know, it's, it's a global issue, isn't it? That especially post-pandemic, a lot of the experts I was speaking to were sort of tooling up to try to prepare for the, for the onslaught of people who are going to need help post-pandemic for, in terms Mm -hmm. of loneliness, in terms of loss um, and and all of the other, you know, disappointments and and grief that we've all experienced. So I think when I would speak to people from black communities who would say that their experience even you know of the mental health system when they were able to access it has been different you see a massive injustice there um mm. well-being inequality is being more and more documented and talked about and it used to be that money couldn't buy you happiness and recently it's been shown that actually to a degree it can because well-being and to be able to pay for especially in the US you know the level of of healthcare the level of support that we might need to meet all these markers of inverted commas, like a good life, the Aristotelized idea of a good life, then that does cost money. And so, yes, there's huge injustice and inequality there. On the other hand, as you say, I, you know, North America and the UK are not doing brilliantly for, for many of these metrics of being able to talk about their emotions. And there isn't, I guess, so much community in in many areas. So where there isn't so much of an of a culture now of of coming together. And Denmark, where I live now, is not great on that, but they have something called Samfun Sin from um, Samfun community and Sin meaning mind, which means kind of community mindset. And there's this mm. idea that you do look out for each other and you do trust your neighbour. And that certainly 
isn't the case in the US and the UK. And that's not just my opinion, it is statistically levels of trust in the UK and the US have fallen from 60% to 30% in the last 50 years. And I think this has a big impact on how we are able to to talk, you know, to as I said, like you know, having a trusted person to talk to. If we're not feeling that, then that's going to be more difficult to express our sadness and is something we have to get better at. So yeah, I looked at, at different cultures. I spoke to Desmond Tutu's daughter and granddaughter uh, about Ubuntu, the great South African concept of I am because you are this mm. idea that we are in it together, or at least we should be, at least this is a theory, and that to you can't just do yourself when you're sad. You can't just look after yourself. You have to give something back. You have to look after other people yeah. and the interconnectedness of humanity, which felt like a very useful thing to bear in mind in our divided and polarized times. So you've written about the happiest place on earth or one of the happiest places on earth, right? Denmark. Um, but then you say that there's, you know, a, a more extraordinary, an extraordinary and, and singular way of handling sadness there. You'd think that they might be just really good at pressing it down. <laughs> and, um, and in fact, no, sadness gets a full expression there. In Denmark, what, what they've really done is removed the, the causes of unhappiness rather mm. than necessarily being the happiest place. They've just taken away many of the, the reasons for unhappiness with, I guess, high levels of trust and, um, you know, health of, you know, healthcare is free for everyone. Education is free for everyone. You get paid to be to study over the age of 18. There's a good mm. work-life balance. So they have all of these things in place. People tend to go to school with the same people for around 10 years. So mm. these deep friendships develop. So most Danes will have someone to to talk to they will have close networks and it's a small country there's only 5.6 million of them so mm. you know they pretty much all know each other there's <laughs> there's more of a kind of a chatty social community vibe going on and there's lots of clubs or associations as well because they work such um relatively short hours only around 33 hours a week on average mm. so people are part of clubs or associations so they have this sense of belonging and they'll see, you know, Jens from the tennis club every Wednesday. And they'll <laughs> see Meta from, you know, darts club or whatever on a Tuesday. So there'll be a sense that they'll have their people who they'll see. A lot of the ways that we would want to have a support network are, are set up more institutionally, I think, in Denmark mm -hmm. than they might be elsewhere. But they're certainly not perfect. I think... Um, I think other cultures in Europe do it a little better. I think Greece, for example, hmm. there's a real um, culture of mourning and a culture of being more expressive there. And it becomes, you know, the idea that if, you, if you're if you sad and you share it, then your sadness is halved in Greece. There's, it, It's much more open, I would say, in, in Southern Europe than in the Scandinavian countries. So how are we supposed to teach this to our kids? You know, for starters, we can we can teach kids growing up that actually everybody is allowed to feel all of their emotions, and that's okay, and that would really help future generations. Hopefully, the the idea is the goal is that we're taught that as children by our parents. They will teach us an appropriate response on the emotional scale for each of these things. They'll help us label our emotions. So if we mm -hmm. if we lose something, if we lose a, a doll when we're little. Then our parent, for example, instead of going, oh, you'll be fine or oh, I'll buy you another one or whatever it might be, they would say, oh, that's really sad. I'm, I'm sorry you've lost that. But then if we ramped it up a gear and, you know, 
set fire to the house, they might say, now that was a little step too far. For example, these are extreme examples. But the idea is that our parents teach us what is an appropriate response to things. Now, many of us, myself included, did not get that. So we have to then learn it as adults. And emotional regulation or a problem with it often um, manifests in three ways. Firstly, we get the emotion sooner than other people. The Mm. second way is it's more heightened than with other people. And Mm -hmm. the third way is it it takes us longer to return to a baseline. Mm. So... As adults, what we can do is think, oh, was that an appropriate response? And that's hard. It's all hard. It's, you know, it's breathing in that moment and trying to remember this, you know, rationally when we are in that het up state. But it's it's thinking about that process. And once we become aware of it, it is quite helpful. I see times when I can't park the car and I want to cry and I think, am I sad? No, I'm not sad. I'm, I'm frustrated. Yeah. And that, that's quite helpful to label that. I also think, you know, the idea that we have to vent our emotions is a little problematic. I think we have to hmm. feel them and we can express them. But the hydraulic idea of emotions is something that has to come out. I feel as though it's something that um, has been heard in courts of law for a long time as reasons why for example, one partner would hurt another partner or, you know, mm. you know, someone had it coming or I couldn't control my anger. And I, that mm. feels really problematic for me. So I, the idea that we have to vent, I, I, I reject, but I think certainly it's experiencing that emotion is all valid and expressing it in a healthy way. And what might be one of those healthy ways? I, I mean, asking for a friend. Um. <laughs> <laughs> just, just curious, just for a bumper yeah. sticker. Um, I think, you know, breathing, quite underrated. Um, yeah. And I am not good at any of the kind of the meditation and the mindfulness I still slightly struggle with. And, and that's mm. from years of really trying my best with all of that. But box breathing, I find quite helpful where you're, mm. where you're you know, in for four, hold for four, out for four, hold for four. Or if you're mm. really stressed, I just do it for two on each of them, but don't tell any of the experts. Um, <laughs> I think you, re- you race through your box exercise. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, and there's something, you know, I spoke to psychologists who said, try and maybe have a comfort box. So if you're feeling just like you're about to explode or you're just irrationally um, upset about something, maybe you have a box that has something maybe um, tactile in it or something, a fabric that you like or um, a, f- a photograph of somebody who, who makes you feel peaceful or you have a friend on speed dial who is your, you know, the buddy, the buddy system friend. Mm-hmm. When the psychologist first told me this, my first thought was, oh, I'll just fill the box with chocolate. But apparently that is not also the right idea. <laughs> but, um, y- you know, anything that makes you stop, that just sort of breaks that that sort of spiral pattern that we can all fall into, yeah. um, I have been assured is helpful and I have found to be helpful in, in my own experience. But how is that not more repression? Because I think you are you're not saying this emotion is not valid. Instead Mm. of, for example, punching a wall, you are breathing and you're thinking, oh, I'm really angry about that. Gosh, I'm really angry that that just happened. And then you're thinking, okay, what what am I going to do about that? Then it's something awakening. It's something positive. It's going to help you do something about it rather than hurting your fist or doing something that you might regret or saying something you might regret. You just refer in the book to a kid's, a child says they hate someone or somebody or something. And um, our typical response, and it's so reflexive, right? We can almost all say it together. Hate is a strong word. You dislike them. Sort of reframing an emotion, but making it smaller 
In fact, I remember my mother, I would be like, I would say, you know, I'm going insane. And she would say, you do sound disappointed. (laughs) (laughs) Just make it really small and annoying. And then it's just like, no, I'm, or that really, you sound like you must be very upset by that, you know. And uh, at least my children tell me that um, mirroring something back in this, in a kind of socially acceptable way instead of letting it have all its angular dimension and emotion, can also sometimes feel, um, you know, be maddening in itself. Um, It takes a certain amount of real zen to somehow let your child hate. You know, we're talking about big emotions. Let your child think to themselves, I want to kill that person. It's just very, it's very difficult, but it, but, there's a, it's a leap of faith. As a mother, do you are you really, really able to let your kids have the totality of their experience? I would say that only since researching this book and writing this hmm. book, it's taken, you know, it's taken, I needed some convincing. I think there's one thing learning something intellectually and then another thing putting it into practice on your own flesh and blood. So yeah, I think I, I made sure that that psychologists agreed that it was a, a helpful way to be. And it's not that you're necessarily saying, um, yes, hate that person forever, forever. But it's mm-hmm. more just letting that child feel seen and heard. And as you say, not minimising it and uh, reflecting it back as an understatement, because then they'll think they haven't been understood. So yeah. it's, it's wow, you feel like you hate that person right now. That is, that's really strong. You can still say that's really strong. And then mm-hmm. you might talk it through and then you might get to a place where, where they might volunteer. I mean, I've had a few times my son has volunteered. I mean, maybe I don't hate that person after all, but, you know, I think there's nothing particularly to be lost at, the, at this stage by, by allowing someone to feel that in the moment and then trying to help them, you know, regulate their emotions so that they can do something with it, they know how to handle it in future. Yeah. Yeah. So you also, we talked about sadness, but you also experienced what I think of as depression. And I want to understand because maybe I'm just speaking for myself, but I think some of us who take antidepressants are very wary of saying, um, well, just breathe through it and, um, and it'll go away because, you know, those medications in some cases have really provided, I'll just speak for myself, the ground beneath my feet. And the idea of pulling that out is just impractical and also terrifying. Anyway, tell me about your experience with depression as opposed to sadness. Yeah, absolutely. So I was first um, prescribed antidepressants in my 20s to help get over an eating disorder. And I felt more able to cope. And Mm -hmm. I have had antidepressants at various points throughout my life. I've tried a few of them and they have always helped me cope more. I think what I found very interesting was actually that some of them were at times in my life when sad things had happened and maybe it was perfectly normal for me to be feeling that way. Mm -hmm. I'm not suggesting anyone should not be taking medication. What I did find very interesting was researching into, you know, the pharmaceutical industry and looking at the the DSM-5, which is the latest one in in the US, that the whole world now takes the US Diagnostic Manual about mental health and, and 
takes the criteria from there. So there are, I think, nine criteria for depression. You only have to have five of them to get the diagnosis. So someone else could have four completely different ones and get the same diagnosis as, as you. The number of criteria that you had to have to get the diagnosis of depression came about quite arbitrarily from my understanding. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, that feels a little bit problematic. And then also the science of for example, SSRIs, the serotonin inhibitors that that many people are prescribed, is also there's so much that's not known. I spoke to some of the best brain scientists in the world Mm. and and they would still say, we just don't know. There's so much of the brain we still don't understand. I spoke to psychiatrists who would say, this is as tough as it gets. This has been my life's work. Mm. I still don't understand it. So Mm. therefore, part of my my journalist in me becomes quite sceptical and wonders what's going on here. And I think... Many of us, when I first was prescribed antidepressants, I was given SSRIs and I was told you need these because your brain is not producing enough serotonin. And so these tablets will stop your brain from losing the serotonin so quickly. It will inhibit the the washing away of those serotonin for want of a better word. And so your brain will hang on to it for longer and you will feel better. And we know now that that isn't quite true and that's quite problematic because then you feel, well, I can never come off these tablets because if my brain doesn't make what one needs to be a healthy, uh, you know, happy human, then that's yeah. terrifying. And in studies, lots of people have been very scared of coming off uh, SSRIs because of this. Mm-hmm. Um, we know a lot not more now about neuroplasticity and the fact that actually SSRIs, what they might do is just enable that a little bit more. So I, I just, I suppose in the book, I wanted to explore how much we don't know, how possibly we are very quick to prescribe in the UK and certainly in the US where access to talking therapies is so scant, as we've talked about before, there are the you know mm-hmm. massive inequalities at play there. And, and perhaps there might be a better way, but I wouldn't advise for a moment that anyone should not be taking antidepressants. And, and again, yeah, that just seems a really hurtful thing to think at times when people are feeling low and need need that help. Ellen, thank you so much for being here on This Is Critical. A total pleasure. Thanks for having me. Producer Harry, we've got a postscript. P.S. So that was surprisingly undepressing. What'd you think? Well, I think that's the point, right? Like, we're not supposed to be depressed about sadness. We're supposed to em- embrace it or just allow it, I guess, which is, as a, a good Midwestern boy, I am uh, struggling with, and it really <laughs> makes me question a lot of my upbringing. You, as usual, have done some research. I know Helen has done a lot more research than me and has a lot more experience with this, but I found an article in Greater Good magazine, which is not a cult, even though it sounds like the Greater Good. Totally does. Okay. It's a real thing. Uh, A psychologist from the University of New South Wales wrote an article that kind of distilled four ways sadness may be good for you. And it's interesting, like there is a field study that found that people had better recollection of details of objects in a shop on rainy, unpleasant days compared to bright, sunny days. So sadness might improve your memory. Interesting. Um, It might improve your judgment. People were more likely to make social misjudgments, like deciding who was being truthful versus who was being deceptive. Um, When they're happy, they're worse at that. Oh, Um, I like that. 
yeah, they they found that people test subjects shown a sad film made more of an effort during a task and achieved better results on a task than people shown a happy film. So they said it increases your motivation. Um, and then also weirdly, and I I like just personally disagree with this. They said that it can you improve your interactions with other people. These test subjects were shown a happy or sad film and then made to go request a file from a person in a nearby office. And the people who watched a sad movie were a lot more polite and better at kind of like requesting things in order to get what they wanted, made more persuasive arguments to get the file. Like, I don't know how intensely guarded this file was that they were trying to get, (laughs) but they were better at uh, the interactions involved in getting that file, apparently. Maybe they could connect more with the reluctance and the, like, sort of depressive recessiveness of the person with the file. This is like a movie scene I need to see. Well, yeah, I mean, it made me reconsider my natural public tendency when interacting with strangers, which is to turn on customer service voice, be like, how can I get this for you today? You know, Harry, as usual, it's so good to talk to you. That's it for this week's show. Make sure you don't miss next week's episode by following us or subscribing on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Pandora, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, please take a moment to rate it and review it in Apple Podcasts with five stars. It helps other people to learn about the show. For more information and to keep tabs on the show, follow me on Twitter at Page88 and the show at This Critical Pod. And you can email me your questions at thisiscriticalpod at gmail.com. This is Critical is made by me, Virginia Heffernan, and Stitcher. Harry Huggins is the producer. Tracy Samuelson is our editor. Brendan Burns mixed this episode and composed our original theme. And Josephine Martirana is our executive producer. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Stitcher. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.